Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Byrne. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing really well. We are still in our respective apartments, but this is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with my co-host, Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, Kid Stuff Public Relations, and The Toy Guy. And today we have a return guest and we are so excited to do this. Chris Bench of the Strong Museum in Rochester. And we think that this is a really nice way to have a little fun and a little lightness in all the stuff that's going on right now, because we're going to talk about the Toy Hall of Fame. Chris, welcome. Nice to have you back. Great to be with you guys. Well, I would like to say that as a voter, in the Toy Hall of Fame, and I be I feel very privileged to be to be a voter. We want to welcome you today, Chris, and we want to get into the Toy Hall of Fame. Uh, who's in? Who's out? Uh, <laughs> a, little bit, a little bit of the history of the, of the Toy Hall of Fame and how determination is made as to who gets in. For starters, just tell us a little bit about the history of the Toy Hall of Fame. Well, if your listeners didn't even know there was a Toy Hall of Fame, they can be excused for that because it hasn't been around as long as the Baseball Hall of Fame or even the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It started back in 1998 in Salem, Oregon. Richard, Chris, did you ever have an A.C. Gilbert erector set or chemistry set? I did, actually. I did. I had the cheap erector set. I'm still bitter. I, I had the uh, chemistry step back when you could still make things that blew up. So yeah, in the early seventies. <laughs> well, in Salem, Oregon, there was a little museum, still is today. At that time, it was called A.C. Gilbert's Discovery Village, and they were dedicated to all things A.C. Gilbert, and they started a Hall of Fame. I won't say it was fixed, but I will <laughs> be slightly suspicious that a rector set got into the Hall of Fame the first. <laughs> And they were having their Hall of Fame. It was going along okay. But in 2002, they kind of hit an, an impediment. And the impediment was none other than Raggedy Ann. Now, Raggedy herself was just fine. It was the crazy people who wanted to get Raggedy Ann into the Hall of Fame that created problems. They tied up the switchboard. They sent petitions. There were even picketers, I'm told, out in front of the museum dressed as Raggedy Ann. And it was kind of overwhelming to this little museum. And they decided that this was the, the tail that was wagging their dog instead of the opposite way around. So when their president met our president that year, the Strong Museum in Rochester has the biggest collection of toys, dolls, and games. We always wanted a Hall of Fame, but they beat us to the punch. When our president conveyed that message to their president, she said, you know, for the right price, it could be yours. So in 2002, the Hall of Fame moved east to Rochester, New York, which is where it's been ever since. And we've been inducting toys every November since then. So Raggedy Ann was kind of the QAnon of its time. <laughs> is Raggedy Ann in the Hall of Fame? She is. And we united her a few years later with Raggedy Andy because one without the other isn't complete. You mentioned that the people are inducted every November and we don't know who's going to win yet. But can you tell me who's nominated for this year? Alphabetically, here we go. Baby Nancy, Bingo, Briar Horses, Jenga, Light Bright, 
Masters of the Universe Toys, My Little Pony, Risk, Sidewalk Chalk, Sorry, Tamagotchi, and Yahtzee. Wow. I'm surprised that some of those aren't in there already. My Little Pony, for example. That's the reaction every year. In fact, My Little Pony, you've nailed it, Chris, uh, is this year's Susan Lucci of the toy world. (laughs) Always nominated, never quite in uh, My Little Pony. This is her sixth time in the rodeo. We'll see whether it's the lucky turn for My Little Pony. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Can you tell the listeners a little bit what the what the process is. I try to persuade people every year that when they write their nomination on the back of a $50 bill and send it to me, that is the best way to get (laughs) things into the Hall of Fame. The old fixeroo. Yes. Unfortunately, I'm not as persuasive as I hope that I am. No one has even sent me a five with their nomination, let alone 50. The real way is that people can nominate toys all year long. In fact, right now, we're already accepting nominations for 2021 at toyhalloffame.org. And this is better than a regular election. You can nominate every day, all the time, from now until we close nominations at the end of next July. So, And some people do. I remember the year that one very dedicated daughter nominated her father, the creator of Barrel of Monkeys, and nominated Barrel of Monkeys to get into the Hall of Fame, I think, 600 times herself. So she gets points. Wow. And and did it make it? Is Barrel of Monkeys in the Hall of Fame? It is not, but we hold our hand over our heart at how how wonderfully uh, faithful she was to her father's memory. Who are the voters who ultimately make the decision? Before it gets to the voters, last year we got about 4,000 nominations for almost 700 different toys. Folks here at the Strong Museum, historians, curators, we boil it down to a group of 12 that best meet our criteria and then send that out to what we consider the Academy and our little Academy Awards. We call them in a big mouthful, the National Selection Advisory Committee. It's 12, it's 24 people, about two dozen. Richard is one of the elite people with insights into toys, child development, history, creativity. And those are the folks who make the votes that decide the three toys that get into the Hall of Fame. Some of the toys that have made it into the Toy Hall of Fame have raised eyebrows over the years. The stick, the cardboard box. Some of these are not traditional toys, but goodness knows they are a huge part of childhood play. I am glad you recognize that. 2005, when we inducted the cardboard box, I went to Toy Fair expecting that all the people from the toy industry, the producers, the retailers, would hate us because we were promoting a giveaway rather than the finely created, crafted, marketed products that they put out. And the folks within the toy world loved the cardboard box every bit as much as the rest of America and had memories of refrigerator boxes and washer boxes that had been influential in their childhood creativity. Chris Bench, what is the the oldest toy in the Hall of Fame? 
You know, some of them go back to prehistory, like marbles and jacks. Those are found in ancient archaeological sites, not in the versions that we might recognize most easily. No glass marbles, but definitely clay marbles are probably things that have been around since Stone Age times. I lived in an 18th century house in Connecticut for a while, and we actually found clay marbles when we were doing the landscaping, digging up what became the lawn. We found clay marbles in the dirt. It was pretty amazing. But Chris, when we, when we come into, I guess, uh, the consumer age, which is uh, late 19th century, roughly, um, what would be the earliest toys that we might see from that period? Well, even a little older than that, what I think of as one of the first sort of mechanical toys is the jack-in-the-box. It's essentially reliant upon clockwork, the same as a time-telling clock. It's got the same kinds of gearing as a music box. It's just a music box with one added action, that spring action that pops out jack. And that goes back in my last calculation, about 500 years. Probably was originally for very wealthy people, I would imagine. Uh, They would have been at the outset. So you've announced the nominees and the voting is going on, we presume now. When you announce the winners, you're going to announce them in November. But how can consumers interact with the list in a year, especially when we're all remote? Right after we announced the 12 finalists in September, we gave the public an opportunity for one special week to enter in their votes for what we call the player's choice category. So this is the public's opportunity to weigh in on what should be in the Hall of Fame. And the votes of the public become one of the National Selection Advisory Committee. It's a system similar to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that has closed we internally know who's getting in now, and we are building up to the exciting release of that information on November 5th. So whatever happens on November 3rd, election day, whether your campaign <laughs> has won or lost or we're in the middle of a mucky mess, as some people suspect, the excitement will not be over on the 5th. We're going to be announcing the new inductees to the Toy Hall of Fame, and it will be a message to unite America wherever you stand on the political spectrum. That's a much bigger story and one we'll be certainly happy to celebrate. How much of it is timing? I'm thinking that when you look at Christmas wish lists for kids, early 20th century, hoop and stick, the goat cart, and orange, these were the really the popular toys at that time. But yet, uh, to my knowledge, the hoop and stick and the goat cart are not in the uh, Toy Hall of Fame. So how much of it is timing? Well, I don't know whether it's timing. I would say it's persistence. Because one of the qualities that we look for is toys that are recognizable to everyone. And yeah, maybe people have seen hoop and stick out there at like a historical restoration. It's not something that our audience, whatever your age, has probably grown up with. So it tends to be things that people, living folks, have experienced, maybe loved, 
maybe passed on to their kids and grandkids. And it's those toys that are still maybe not front of mind. They aren't in the hot 10 for any particular holiday season right now, but they are those evergreen toys that keep on going. The teddy bears, the radio flyer wagons, the etch-a-sketches, the slinkies, things that just don't age out. They are ones that have play value that keep them pertinent to generation after generation. Can you uh, share with listeners uh, some of the toys that are, are already in the Toy Hall of Fame and maybe some of your favorites? You don't One. have favorites, though. You can't. Uh, you're, like, you're like a dad. You don't have favorites. He has favorites. <laughs> well, last year we inducted Matchbox toy cars, and I was really glad to see that. As somebody who'd grown up in the 1960s, Hot Wheels got into the Hall of Fame first, even though they were second to come to the sort of classic little teeny car category. They were faster than Matchbox, but they didn't have the realistic details to my standard as a kid who loved cars and toy cars. So I was delighted when finally in 2019, Matchbox toy cars got into the Hall of Fame. Chris, what was unique about the Matchbox cars that, that say maybe differentiated them from what had come in before? They were so realistic. They had doors that could open, hoods, trunks. They looked like cars that I love to identify as they drove down the street in my hometown. They were ones that I could recognize. And kids love realism in a lot of cases. They want the things that they recognize, whether that's a Lionel train that looks just like what crosses the tracks near their house, or a drinking wet doll that has actions just like their baby brother or sister Realism counts with lots of kids. Chris, wasn't it also um, a, a real strong collectability element in Matchbox cars? Right. And as with Hot Wheels, they've got, they're small enough, they're pocketable, they're capable of being bought on your allowance money or nagging your parents into buying them at the checkout counter at Target. Uh, they are have a low price point. They are really achievable. They are not those once a year kind of toys. And one of the things I loved about Matchbox was I was I was a big Matchbox kid also, was that they also had a whole line of models of yesteryear, which I was fascinated by, which were, you know, the Model A's, the Model T's, a lot of the, the Pierce Arrows, a lot of the things that... that made part of my collection. And they were, those Those were the expensive ones. I think those were two bucks, but definitely buying them for, you know, my allowance money was a big part of my childhood. What, what other toys in the Hall of Fame, Chris, that really speak to you? Well, you know, one of the ones I was thrilled to see included uh, four years ago, it was five, was the Super Soaker. It was the breakthrough squirt gun of all times. I know growing up in my childhood, squirt guns from the five and dime store were really lousy. They did a better job of dribbling water down to your elbow than yeah. even squirting a foot. And, and it took a NASA rocket scientist to understand and appreciate the power of pressurizing water to create air pressure that you could really release a blast. And I continue to celebrate Lonnie Johnson's brilliant creation. It was one of those sort of unintentional items. He was working on a NASA piece of 
heat equipment. He was hoping to cool it with pressurized water and was testing it in his bathroom at home. And as any of us who have mucked up a different plumbing project realize, water under pressure makes a big mess and it can shoot a long way. But Lonnie was smart enough when he had his accidental water eruption to realize if I can channel this and turn this into something marketable, it could be a great toy. And boy, was he right. One of the things that I think is so important about toys and the Hall of Fame is the emotional connection that people make to their toys. I think that I can go into any situation and ask somebody, what did you love? As a, what did you play with as a child? And instantly you're in a conversation because their faces light up and these toys that we had really do create part of who we become as adults. And I think that that's something that the Toy Hall of Fame does. Can you talk a little bit about how people respond, not just to the Hall of Fame, but to the entire experience of being at the Strong Museum? I'm so lucky to be in a museum that cultivates those happy memories. Although every now and again, there's those memories of, mom, you never let me have a, you fill in the blank here. But most of what I hear from people of whatever age is, I had one of those, that sense of recognition that your past is in a museum, that the playthings that you valued and that have, as you say, Chris, shaped who you are and who you've become, they are so key. I spoke to someone a while ago who said, you know, there are aviation museums all over the world, but only a few people really care about airplanes. But we've all been kids. We've all had toys. Why aren't there more museums like the Strong Museum? I'm glad they're not, but it is something that we're really dedicated to because how we play is so integral to who we are as kids, as grownups, and I hope we help cultivate and encourage people to keep on playing whatever your age. That's a great point. The only other major toy museum that I know of is in Nuremberg. No, that's very true, and it's, it is interesting that in the whole world, there's only two. Uh, I think Hong Kong has, uh, has a toy museum now. Right, and there's a smaller toy museum in Kansas City, Missouri, But uh, nothing compares to either the one in Nuremberg or even bigger footprint, as I understand it here at the Strong Museum, where we occupy essentially a city block. Chris, let's talk about controversy. Is um, the cap gun or caps in the Toy Hall of Fame? It is not. And And the BB gun. We hear every year from the people, especially who want the Daisy air rifle. They're thinking especially of the Christmas story movie. And one of the behind the scenes criteria that we have, there's three big criteria, longevity, play value, and recognition factor, icon status, we call it. And also innovation gets toys into the Hall of Fame. But behind the scenes, we want toys that are safe for their intended audience is our wording. So that is a filter that currently has kept things like the BB gun, the Daisy air rifle out of the Hall of Fame. Those are toys that I grew up with and and the the greeny stickum caps from Mattel. Oh, love, yeah, greeny stickum caps were phenomenal. What we used to do, we used to take them and put them on on, on the underside of the toilet seat in my parents' house. So when <laughs> they would go in there and put down the toilet seat, the caps would go off. 
You were much more ingenious than I with your cap. I just hammered them on the sidewalk to make individual pops and smell that sort of uh, blasting powder kind of aroma. Well, absolutely. You could buy five boxes of caps, the roll caps, for a quarter. And then you you take, and each had like five rolls in them. You take the entire roll and a hammer and you just smash it and it makes a really big boom. So, Chris... (laughs) Chris Bench, do you think that could change? I mean, these were iconic. Uh, of, of, if you're talking about iconic toys, I think the cap gun, the BB gun, frankly, the bow and arrow. For those of us who are boomers, those were iconic parts of childhood. And I do understand the issues around safety and that sort of thing. But do you think um, there could be a time when uh, these are in the Hall of Fame uh, and that they are appropriately treated in terms of the fact that they're dangerous, et cetera. That time could certainly come. Uh, I contend that if you misuse any toy, there are dangers to all of them. You could choke on a Barbie shoe. I don't know. It, It just goes on and on, the possibilities for toy mishaps to occur. So it's not out of the question. You can be reassured that in the 500,000 items in the Strong Museum's collection, there are lots of examples of air rifles, BB guns, cap guns. So we haven't overlooked them in recognizing the history of toys, but they haven't been celebrated as part of the Hall of Fame itself. You mentioned My Little Pony as the Susan Lucci of the of the Hall of Fame voting. Is there any toy that you look around and you say, I can't believe nobody's nominated that? You know, the ones that kind of gratify me most that do get nominated are the really en- elemental ones. Dirt, rock, <laughs> water, snow, uh, all of those come up. Sand, and the people who want dirt are not the same as the people who want sand in the Hall of Fame. There is a division. We are a polarized nation. The dirt <laughs> advocates are not the same as the sand advocates. They well, you, each make their respective cases. You've just given us some real dirt. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful reflection of how people are considering play in the context of childhood. You know, my mother used to turn the hose on us before she'd let us come in the house because, especially in summer, if we were in the mud, because we would be filthy. And that was part of growing up as a kid in in the 60s and 70s. So I don't think they're disqualified because those were very beloved playthings. My mother turned the hose on me, and I don't even know why. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, Chris and Chris, uh, it is interesting when you think about it that playing in the sprinkler, as an example. There's a lot of things that we did that were not toys, but yet they were play. And so I I guess, Chris, uh, Bench, that when you uh, put the stick or the box and consider sand or dirt, what you're really saying is we're called the Toy Museum, but we're really the, the play hall of fame. That's right. And every now and again, I get some stickler who says, well, Uno is a game. It's not a toy. Or we inducted the Atari 2600 and the Game Boy. Those are electronic devices. Those aren't toys. And I might, you've made the point exactly. I said, you know, it's kind of a mouthful to say it's the National Hall of Fame for things that people use to play with. And it's much catchier to call it the National Toy Hall of Fame. 
And you can also stir up controversy, which is in this case is not a, is not necessarily a bad thing because it gets people talking about toys and play, which is a conversation that always has a place in our culture. That's right. That was in our minds as we included the smartphone last year in the 12 finalists to get people thinking about that's where lots of us, whatever our age play with, is it a device for play every bit as much as a Game Boy or an Atari 2600? I've also made the case that playing cards, which are in the Hall of Fame, are the original handheld mobile device yes. uh, for yes. gaming. Yes. And the checkerboard is an early play platform. Right. And, and for, Absolutely. for years, uh, Etch-A-Sketch marketed themselves as the original laptop. <laughs> so if only our laptops worked as reliably as <laughs> are all the toys in the toy hall of fame are they still on the market today or is there anything that just either for reasons of technology or lack of interest are noteworthy but yet are no longer part of a child's play experience all of them are still on the market uh right down to the present they may not be as prolific Probably the one that comes to mind as not being in quite as many homes is Jack's. But even that shows up still right down to the present. So do jump ropes. Some of the ones that go back to the distant past, kites are more than 3,000 years old. We're still playing with those. So all the 71 toys that are currently in the Hall of Fame are still out there Nobody is probably buying a new Atari 2600, but it got in on innovation for breaking electronic play into the home market. So it definitely deserves a place. Similarly for the Game Boy, it was, again, a breakthrough in play. Well, very interestingly, in 2020, Nintendo is introducing a relaunch of the original game and watch. And it's $49. I had one of them. And they are reintroducing it for the parents and grandparents who remember that as their first handheld game. So it really is something that is still classic that people still respond to and, and it resonates with them. Well, and you guys probably see this phenomenon even more clearly than I do is the sort of 25 or 30 year cycle of playthings that as kids grow up and become parents themselves, there's a craving to give their children the toys of their childhood. We've seen that with Masters of the Universe toys from the 80s or Pound Puppies, some of these things that have gotten reboots or reissues and come back around because what I grew up with, I turned out okay. I want my kids to have it too. Chris and Chris, it strikes me as we're talking that when parents uh, want to introduce their child to their favorite toy from when they were a kid, it's really an attempt to, to engage childhood again. And when that toy meant so much to them. Chris, do you find when adults bring their children to the museum, is, is that some of what's going on? It is. And we try to create environments where parents engage right along with their kids in playing rather than standing to one side, scanning through their phones. And we have adults only events here at the museum. And one of the things that's so rewarding is to see people of all sorts of ages feel empowered to play again and not feel silly or out of place, whether they're teenagers or whether they're 75 year olds who are playing and 
realizing that I can still have fun. I can let go of what feels serious or solemn and play is something that I can continue to do. Well, Chris Bench, thank you for talking about play with us today. Chris Bench is the vice president of collections for the Strong Museum, and we can't wait till we can all be back inside the museum and playing uh, with these toys. We are welcoming guests and we are ready to welcome you guys back. So please come and we want to get even more folks into the museum to enjoy the pleasures of play. And stay tuned to November 5th when this year's inductees into the Toy Hall of Fame will be announced. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind, certainly in the toy industry. And we are recording this on Friday, October 16th. And it's important to note the date because we've just heard that another show has postponed. That's the Hong Kong Toys and Games Fair. It's now been rescheduled to the end of April. And of course, as with Toy Fair coming up right after that in New York, there are a lot of issues going on. Richard, what's your thinking on this? I think, first of all, this is just another domino to fall in terms of trade shows. Uh, it's not unexpected. I think what is unexpected is the timing of the show, uh, which really bumps right into New York Toy Fair, which uh, should, God willing, we all be able to travel easily at that time, is going to create a lot of challenges for people who would need to be in two places at one time. Because if you have two shows bumping up against each other on two opposite sides of the world, <laughs> that really leads to some real logistics uh, challenges. And, and obviously, it appears, at least to me, that the New York Toy Fair and the Hong Kong Trade Development Council didn't get together <laughs> on it, as far as I can see. So Hong Kong has moved it to the 27th to 30th of April, and... The reason they're doing it is it's concurrent with the printing and packaging fair and deluxe print pack. And it's all sort of trying to roll as many things together as possible to be as efficient as possible. Well, yeah, I'm not sure efficiency is the, the watchword right now, but certainly uh, probably from a costing standpoint and a calendar standpoint, it works. I think the bigger issue is the ultimate fate of Hong Kong itself. Chris, for those who are not familiar with the toy industry calendar, we kind of migrate uh, from place to place. We we start in Dallas and we migrate to Hong Kong and then to Nuremberg, Germany, and then to New York. And all these shows have been postponed. Uh, the Nuremberg show actually being postponed uh, even later than New York Toy Fair. What's significant about the Hong Kong show is Americans really, they go to Hong Kong, but they don't go to the show. So American, right. Brits, and some other Westerners congregate in the Kowloon area of, of Hong Kong where there are toy showrooms and there are hotels with suites. It is really questionable whether those people who go for the Kowloon side of the business, not the show, are going to go. I agree. And there are some American manufacturers that do show in the convention center. And I think it may be appropriate for them. But the big issue with all these shows is where where it comes in the product development year. So we're too late for sales for 2021 because people should be manufacturing already. And we're too early to show 2022, certainly not Q4 stuff. There may be some early spring stuff to show, but we don't know. 
the one advantage to this time for some American companies may be that they would be planning to be over there anyway as manufacturing is starting. But I can't see buyers from Walmart, Target, Kohl's, wherever, any of the, the big guys who typically go to Hong Kong in January going at this time. No, I think even if the coronavirus is eased off, I would be doubtful that those who handle, and I'm not kidding here, their liability insurance, uh, their lawyers, et cetera, would probably strongly recommend against going because you don't want to be the management that sent people over and got sick. So uh, it raises huge questions about how products going to be shown and how products going to be evaluated. And what this is going to do to all kind of timelines in terms of operations and logistics, setting planograms, making decisions, et cetera. But Chris, wrapped her all around this, I think there's another significant issue that, that we should explore, and that is the rise of Shenzhen, Absolutely. Uh, possibly at the expense of, of Hong Kong. Now, again, for those who are not as familiar with these things, Hong Kong, which was a special part of China that had its own democratic institutions, has now basically been absorbed into China. There's still some democratic institutions functioning in Hong Kong, but it's changing. And um, Hong Kong is very close to Shenzhen. Shenzhen used to be a very remote kind of area. It's now an enormous city. They're building the second tallest skyscraper in the world there. And they just opened the largest convention center in the world. Uh, so the question is going to become, what is it going to look like in terms of the toy industry and its relationship with Chinese production in terms of where we go? Shenzhen, Hong Kong? For those who are not aware, it's I would say Shenzhen is about an hour by train. Is that? Uh, it's it's about an hour to an hour and a half by high speed rail from from Hong Kong. It's very easy to get to. You simply need a visa, but you can get a ten year visa relatively easily. So I think there are very few barriers to entering into China. Well, what, what's significant is that the Chinese government is really touting uh, Shenzhen. Uh, President Xi was just there celebrating the city. So. Um, Going forward, it's going to be very interesting to see if the role as an international banking center, as the role as an international business center, and frankly, the role as an international toy center will shift, or possibly whether we'll see Hong Kong and Shenzhen as one giant megalopolis. And the issue has been that the Chinese shows have typically been shows for the domestic Chinese market. But with the move to Shenzhen from Guangzhou, they are moving closer to the areas where international travelers have offices. They are in the Guangdong province where there's a lot of manufacturing. It really is a commitment to bringing international business into China. So I don't think there are that many barriers to people making the move. And especially if they can make it attractive in a time and expense manner, I think there's a lot of potential for that to grow as an international show. As with everything else that's going on, Chris, you do get this feeling that there are seismic shifts taking place in the world and that the toy industry is certainly not immune in how we do business, where we do business, <laughs> when we do business are, are all shifting before our eyes. And we're all going to have to accommodate that. I completely agree. And the one constant that's not changing 
is Santa has to fly on December 24th. <laughs> so that date is pretty much immovable. So it, in other industries, you can move a season, a few weeks, a month, whatever. For toys, you got to get that stuff to the North Pole so Santa can get it in the sleigh and get it to the kids. And let's just hope President Trump doesn't get angry at Santa Claus. <laughs> I can you just imagine the tweets, you know, <laughs> about, about Santa? Sad, sad, low, low energy elf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just a big, fat, low energy elf. Now we really don't get into politics here, but uh, because toys are <laughs> toys are not political. So, Richard, I'm starting to sound like a broken record. I don't know if anybody listening remembers records, but I'm starting to sound like a broken record because what we end up saying at the end of each of these conversations is we're going to have to wait and see. But I think that the future is going to belong to those who are able to see change, predict change, and, of course, respond to that in a way that builds business. And we're seeing a lot of tactics and technologies and strategies already impacting the toy industry Trade shows are just one other way that are going to be impacted by this change in the culture. Well, we're basically building the plane while we're flying. <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> Let's just hope we can land this sucker. That's, that's true. And we're so glad that you landed on listening to us. This is the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts and The Toy Guy. And we will see you next time. <laughs>